we were staffing up Nike basketball. And we think we just won the account. <laughs> this, this guy's from like Spain, English second language, doesn't know anything about basketball, but an extraordinary designer. And understanding that like he can learn basketball and the culture of basketball, what was universal was like his approach to like expressing himself through the lens of sport and everything. And so anyway, because I was able to make connections with myself, now I was able to hire people and look at people differently. Welcome back to another episode of Design to Be Conversation presented by Design to Be and hosted by Design to Be co-founder and CEO, me, Rachel Weissman. In this show, I have conversations with design leaders about how they continue to learn, grow, and skill build throughout their careers. Each episode will not only help you navigate your career more effectively, but they will even enable you to build better products as a result. Let's dive into it. In this episode, I talk with Tim Allen. Tim was named one of Fast Company's most creative people in business in 2017. He leads the global product design, research, content, and operations team at Instacart, centered on food access and inclusivity. His focus on fueling human potential is key to building products and cultures that inspire people to do their best work. As an additional outlet for his passion around design thinking, Tim speaks and instructs at schools and events around the country. Tim's work has been recognized with several of the industry's most esteemed awards, including multiple Cannes Cyber Lions, D&AD, Andy, Webby, and One Shows Awards. Named in the Creativity 50, Creativity Magazine's 2013 list of the year's most inspiring and influential creative figures. He also played a key role on the award-winning RGA team who created Nike Plus, the platform named Campaign of the Decade by Adweek Magazine, Nike Training Club, Nike's first ever iOS app, and Nike.com. Prior to Instacart, Tim led Airbnb's global product design team. Microsoft's experiences and devices design practice, and Amazon's product design studio as executive creative director, leading the experience design for Echo, Fire TV, and Kindle products. Tim also shaped the vision for one of the largest experience design teams in the United States at RGA, whose Nike Plus work established the future of connected experiences for brands. Through innovative work from Adobe, Red Hat, and IBM, Tim holds seven patents related to software design, ranging from chat interface modeling to mobile device synchronization. We dive into how throughout his career, Tim continued to make the ceiling his floor. We chat about what that means, how his upbringing impacted him as a designer, and how the skills that got you where you are today won't necessarily get you to where you are going next. Welcome, Tim, to the show. Thanks for having me, Rachel. A little bit of context. You have been on my, we'll call it the short, long list of people to have on a, the podcast. As an earlier IC designer, I've been a fan of your design work and design leadership for quite some time. 
So I'm excited to dive into this today. Oh, well, that's kind of you to say. I love the spirit of this podcast series, so I'm honored to be here. So can you share the first moment when you decided to become a designer? So the summer after my sophomore year in high school, my father bought me an airbrush set. And this was like after maybe six months of just like begging to like learn or just be fascinated by airbrushing. Because at the time, there was a sort of this fad of airbrushing apparel and like you would go to the mall and stuff and like you'd see these booths where people were airbrushing like license plates and clothes and stuff like that. And like, I was super into graffiti and whatnot. So I just thought it was like really amazing. And and, like the effects that you could get was it's different from like painting and drawing, which I was already into. And so after I got this airbrush set, I was fascinated and it was so difficult to learn. I just, I spent the whole summer trying to like perfect it because you don't come in contact with the surface that you're painting with airbrush. So it's a whole different like kind of muscle you're developing. I mean, and I was just in the garage like all night long, all summer, just trying to do this. And so the first day of school, a couple of my buddies and I, we wore t-shirts that I had designed and people were like blown away. And so right then it basically started a business. I was doing t-shirts and jeans and stuff for the school, my school, and then it spread to like other schools in the community and like surrounding cities. And then that sort of blossomed into my own little booth at the, not not the mall. I hadn't gotten that. (laughs) I was at, at, it's like at a flea market, right? (laughs) Then I started doing motorcycles and boats and then signage for stores and everything. And by my senior year, I had like a business basically in high school. At some point in that, probably that summer when I was learning, I didn't know if it was going to be like a career. And I was like, oh, well, this is literally what I want to do because I was doing it all the time. I mean, I, I was an athlete as well. I played football and basketball. But when I wasn't like hanging out or like playing sports, I was doing design work, basically. I didn't know it was design work. I was just doing stuff I love. And I didn't know that that actually was a career. I just was like, well, when I graduate, I'll just, you know, I'll keep doing this. And I learned about design school and the fact that you could become like a graphic artist and like there were, you know, different things like that. And I I still didn't know what that was, but I I said, well, maybe let me just apply to design school as like to go to college. I only applied to one school and I used my portfolio from those all those years, like my business portfolio, basically how I got business as my design portfolio. I didn't know what a design portfolio was either. And I ended up getting a full scholarship into design school. And then like the rest is sort of like, kind of, I guess, history. But that was the first time I, I knew I, I wanted to and needed to be a designer. I deeply resonate with that story. My entry point was through creating t-shirts and screen printing. So similar, different, adjacent. Where was high school for you and what school did you go to for design school? I went to high school in Havelock, North Carolina, which is right outside this Marine Corps base. My father is Marine, called Cherry Point. That's a Marine Corps air station. And then the design school is North Carolina State's College of Design. 
I had that also interesting moment where I was like, oh, you can you can do that for, for your job, but is this graphic arts? Is this graphic design? What is this thing? And you can make money from this? Right. <laughs> what? Yeah, it was right. Exactly. It's like, because I was already making money and I was, I, you know, it's like paying for things and it was cool. So I realized that you could make a living doing like what my parents even call it, like art. Like you're an artist, right? And then I was like, okay, I guess I can make money doing art. But the whole design thing and like solving problems and business challenges and all that, it was like completely different to me. I want to touch on something that kind of dives into our topic for today. When we were, we were jamming of what to talk about a while back, and uh, we landed on the topic of making your ceiling your floor. I want to dive into uh, a bit about your upbringing and the military background and how that really affected you to be a, the design leader who you are today. But before doing so, what does making your ceiling your floor mean to kind of level set for folks the foundation of what we're diving into? Yeah, it's really all about this sort of path of resilience and overcoming challenges. When you make your ceiling, your floor, at whatever stage you're in, you've reached sort of like the top of where you might have thought you could get to. So you, maybe you're coming close to or you maybe you've even reached the goal. But understanding all that does is just reveal another level of growth for you. And to always be like understanding that and wanting that next sort of challenge. Let's put a pin in that. And we'll unpack that through many avenues. So diving into a bit of your childhood. So you mentioned that you grew up in, uh, is it Cherry Point? Cherry Point, North Carolina. Prior to that, I'd moved. My, my father was in the Marine Corps, like I mentioned. So every four years or so, we, we would move. Okay. And uh, how was growing up in a military household, how did that affect the way that you navigated your design career? Yeah, it, it profoundly affected it and just my life in general. So Marine Corps bases are huge. And because they're so large, they're typically in rural areas. And in most rural areas, you know, there aren't a lot of black people. So there's a couple of things to unpack there. One is, you know, you're moving a lot. And also when you're moving, you're sort of like the only one. Not only are you sort of a new person, you're, you know, me being black, I'd be the only or one of the only black people as well, or only black family. And that was especially the case growing up in rural Japan. So I grew up in Okinawa and Iwakuni in sort of like early development years. And so I got very comfortable kind of being the only one and learning to overcome exclusion very early, only because my father realized that his children would have to have that skill set, for one in general, even in the United States, but definitely in Japan, where in rural Japan at that time, and even now, but especially at that time, you know, we would go out outside of the base and like get followed around. And, you know, I remember distinctly my father being like bitten by a child just because, you know, the child thought my dad was made out of chocolate. So there's a lot of different things like that going on. But, you know, my father taught me to like 
understand that seeing the world as an outsider is actually a very special skill and very precious because it allows you to kind of see things that no one else sees and also taught me that it allows you to see also what's like special and unique about other people as well. In fact, that's like one of the responsibilities that goes along with like that gift as well. So it just created an extraordinary amount of empathy for people and the like almost compulsion to like solve problems for people as well. You presented that story in such a elegant way. How has that affected your ability to craft strong design teams? I feel like in a lot of organizations, design is also sometimes seen as this outsider. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Which I've, I'm assuming has then put you at an advantage of growing up in this kind of way and then understanding how to navigate it and viewing life in this kind of mindset and way of, I don't know, I feel like there's a lot of different parallels and avenues that we could start going into. Definitely, definitely. I think, and there's a sort of a journey of unlocking how powerful the way of thinking about the world that had sort of been planted in terms of a seed with my upbringing, where going into design school was certainly a case where, you know, another place where I was the only Black kid or one of the only ones in a very foreign sort of place. I was just airbrushing. I didn't know anything about design. You go into design school where, you know, a lot of my peers now had parents who were architects and knew what graphic design was or typography or anything. I knew a lot of things, but they were more intuitive and innate like branding. I could talk to someone about like you know, what they wanted on their motorcycle or a boat or definitely on an apparel and bring that out of them in a way that made them proud to have something like basically permanently on something that was fairly expensive. And I didn't understand how to unpack that in the same sort of vocabulary as my peers. And it was very difficult at first and frustrating and that was the first time I started to understand this concept of code switching. And so I would just intently listen to people during crits, especially on how they were starting to explain their work a lot more than other students. I'm sure students were doing it. And I'd start to sort of mimic that. And I'd understand positive responses to certain like ways of speaking and articulating design and so forth. Could you give a couple examples of what you've picked up on? There were a lot of instances for me and my sort of, especially being young and probably just having more hubris than I, I needed, where it's sort of <laughs> like, you're just like, this design is actually not that good. Like it doesn't, to me, I don't know why, because I haven't learned the sort of vocabulary design yet, but it's sort of like, this is like, I don't know. For me, it was just like, this is whack. In my head, and then I would hear, <laughs> I would hear some of the like top students in my class at the time, like as a freshman and sophomore, relate how they came up with the ideas and start to converse with the professors in this way and get great grades and praise and so forth. And I was like, oh, that is amazing. And for me, I'd put in work that I thought was great 
And my peers would be, oh my God, like, you know, I'd be airbrushing in the studio and everything, but I didn't know how to speak about the work. And so I would have a lot of crits that were just horrible because like the work was great. And then I wouldn't be able to answer questions about like how I came about the work and so forth. And so that's like a clear example of like great work, not knowing how to contextualize it, especially as it relates to the brief, right? Or the assignment at the time. And then I got really good at that because I I hated getting pummeled in crits and, you know, just started to learn how to articulate design. But what was interesting is that I was developing a voice that wasn't necessarily my own, but allowed me to have a very successful like college career after my freshman year and then get into IBM and like have a pretty successful career very early on, like a year into my tenure at IBM, I had a manager named Chris Paul who like made me a manager, uh, which was like very odd at the time and just trusted me to be able to lead people that were older than me and so forth. And that turned out really well. So by the time, you know, I was basically five years into my career, I'd already been managing for a few years. What do you think he saw in you where he was like, okay, let's promote Tim after one year and give him this opportunity? It was working with my peers and leaders and like understanding the way that they articulated all the muscles that were building up until this point, basically in my career, which is being very acutely aware of how to get design recognized and through different gates, and then also wanting to kind of develop the people around me. There would be designs that were great designs, but weren't getting through. And so for me, producing great work wasn't necessarily the biggest challenge for me. I always was kind of obsessed with like, how do you like make it successful or like create an outcome from it? In design schools, the outcome was passing the crit or, you know, getting a great grade or praise from the professor, whatever. And then professionally, it was like, yeah, let's get this launched, shipped, produced, executed, and so forth. So we're at IBM. We just got promoted. We're really excited about it. One piece I want to start to touch on, and this can be more just from a a linear career journey perspective, is uh, starting in corporate, moving into agency, moving back to corporate. So can you start to fill in the dot of that journey a little? (laughs) Well, the biggest thing that happened was, you know, I went from IBM to Macromedia, working on this application called Breeze that was made from Flash. And then I was working, you know, worked the Dreamweaver team and Flash team and so forth. When, you know, Flash was king and my manager was Robert Satsumi. He was the inventor of Flash. I was this Flash geek and I couldn't believe, I, you know, Robert reached out and recruited me and so forth. And it was the most amazing four years ever. I was still using this voice and this articulation that had developed quite a bit since design school and I was managing people and so forth. But I didn't know it it wasn't necessarily my voice until I went from what had been Adobe, Adobe Acquired Macromedia, to agency, which is RGA, when I was recruited to lead Nike Plus. 
And so I came in as associate creative director on the Nike Plus work, sort of the flagship of RGA at the time, right at the beginning when it was a chip in the shoe, like iPhone just came out. And that team, we just rocked it for like six straight years. But what was amazing to me was this was the first time, because we were working with Nike, that like I didn't have to code switch. Because this whole time, what I was doing that my peers didn't have to do is that the way I spoke at work and the way I interacted with people at work is completely different than like the way I interacted with people like at home and my friends and so forth, right? Now at Nike and at RGA, being just me, because I was a sneakerhead, I was an athlete, I played basketball, we created a basketball league. We were, you know, everything about like myself was an asset, like very much so in helping the team bond and getting us close to like the ethos of Nike and so forth and the passion we had around like footwear and apparel and so forth. And that was a huge aha moment of, oh, wow, like this whole time, like it's been two separate worlds. And now that they're together, you have the acumen of like design knowledge and articulating design decisions. And I could just be myself. It was the most prolific time in my design career. We are going to take a short break to hear an exciting update from design to be design to be has been researching and ideating on a digital product. We're super excited about what's in the works, but we need your help. We are looking to chat with heads of design, design managers, and IC designers to better understand the design process at your organization. If you are open for a 30-minute call with me and or Design to Be's co-founder and CTO, Keith Stevens, head to designtobe.com forward slash app to join our waitlist. That's D-E-S-I-G-N-T-O-B-E dot com forward slash A-P-P. After adding your name to the waitlist, we'll then follow up via email. Over a short call, we'll share what we're building, get your feedback, and learn more about your team's design process. These calls directly impact the future of what we're building at design to be So thank you for your support. And we're excited to continue to build Design to Be together. Now, back to the show. It's so inspirational for folks listening to know that that's possible. <laughs> that upon navigating certain hurdles, at least enough, and maybe right out of school, you might not be able to bring those different parts of yourself together. And that's okay. But noting that over time upon navigating different hurdles and noting, okay, if you really care about sneakers or you really care about the environment or whatever it may be, design, I feel like, is one of the few professions that is a horizontal where you can access really any industry because any industry needs quality designers for the most part. I couldn't agree more. And the more you bring an individual perspective that's unique, the better your design is. And a nuance on top of that is having a unique voice, but understanding out of what's unique, also what's universal as well. You know, what's unique about like 
myself was, you know, all the experiences I had and so forth, being an athlete, but then a designer as well and so forth. So all that's unique, but like loving the sport of basketball is, you know, something universal that the team and I built things around. And I remember recruiting Chevy, who's like awesome artist and so forth from Spain into the team as one of like my first hires. And we were staffing up Nike basketball. And we think we just won the account. <laughs> this, this guy's from like Spain, English second language, doesn't know anything about basketball, but an extraordinary designer and understanding that like, he could learn basketball and the culture of basketball. What was universal was like his approach to like expressing himself like through the lens of sport and everything. And so anyway, because I was able to make connections with myself, now I was able to hire people and look at people differently sort of because of that. And then Chevy came in, he joined the basketball league. His first couple of client meetings were rough, to be honest. And like today, like we're still great friends. He embodied Nike basketball after like the first six months or so, more than like anyone on the team. And I think he still plays basketball now. I don't know. Thank, thank you, Chevy. Uh, but you, you touched on something really interesting of how you phrased it, unique elements and universal elements to craft a team. And upon being more aware of the cohesion that you want to create to bind that, it's really powerful. And so then thus you were able to point to, ooh, okay, yeah, this is what I want to pull in here. This is what I want to pull in there. And my assumption is it really helped also elevate the design work in the end. Completely. Because like we had a producer that played college basketball, like at D1 level. Division one, which is kind of, you know, in college, the highest level for folks that don't know what that is. But and so like an intimate knowledge of basketball. And then, you know, it's different of like designers on the team who are expert designers, but like we're new to this world of basketball. We're seeing it in different ways and the debates we would have and the creative tensions that were created. It just produced work that you could almost feel the passion and the different perspectives in the output, which, you know, again, like started to win a ton of awards and get a lot of accolades and also impact Nike's business very well. So uh, what happened after Nike? There was a shift back into corporate. Yeah. So I think this is where, you know, the ceiling wanted to become the floor, or at least I was thinking of it like that, where I progressed from associate creative director to creative director to vice president and then head of experience design. So my team sort of exploded from 10 people to 30 to, you know, hundred plus. And then senior vice president reporting to uh, like our chief creative officer at the time at RGA. And yeah, just like, what's the next challenge? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Nick law at the time wasn't going anywhere. So it's like, I don't, you know, I, probably won't be chief creative officer. So let's like look at what's next, right? Also, that was in the range. This is subliminal. I don't know at the time, but like around the time I would have normally as growing up, probably have moved. So like around the five, six year mark, 
we would usually move. And so RJ was in New York, based out of New York. And then Amazon gave me a call and they were looking for someone to lead hardware and software for like a new set of devices. One of their first forays into hardware and it was just like top secret project. I didn't even know what it was. It's like vague <laughs> references of what it was. And that intrigued me even more, but it was back client side, obviously it's Amazon. And it was also on the other side of the country in Seattle. So sort of like, wow, that's brand new. Let's go for it. And immediately kind of going out to Seattle, new culture, new company, new business model, because you're now you're in-house instead of like agency. You know, yes, I have progressed into executive level at RGA, knew everybody, knew every kind of thing. And then now it's like zero. So I literally went from like the ceiling back down to the floor. And that hardware and software kind of combo ended up being the Alexa platform. And then like we shipped the Echo device, which was the first like device from, from there, which was an incredible experience. But again, like relearning people and culture and like even the importance of design and like how design is thought of in relation to engineering and product management, so forth, all new stuff. One piece that I want to unpack a little bit of, you spoke very like calmly and confidently of, and then I just moved, moved across the country and I just started, <laughs> didn't even know what product I started of, and it, it was all completely new and it was great. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's many people, Tim, who that would be terrifying. So I'm curious, maybe it was growing up in that military household or living in Japan or maybe your foundational childhood experiences, maybe it was other things, but I'm curious what are the skills that you think you've learned along the way that helped develop your mindset to be like, okay, <laughs> let's do this and feel so confident with, with doing so? It totally was my upbringing. That's why I mentioned earlier, this profoundly impacted the way I see the world because by that time, Literally, it wasn't anything new to go to a completely new environment. It was It's almost expected. Like I was at a point in my childhood looking forward. There was a point around four years I'd get kind of itchy. Like, Daddy, when am I going to be the new kid again? You know, this is cool. I like, I got friends and stuff, but where's the next place, you know? And so that was the case there where it gave me more energy than removed energy from me to go into a, like a completely new space and learn and try to like overcome and so forth. What do you think the skills that you learned of being in these new environments and then you were able to apply? So say for the folks who didn't move around every four, five, six years growing up and they're like, ooh, I want some of that. <laughs> um, <laughs> What are skills that they could possibly, or even mindsets, they could start to think about cultivating to be able to adapt more seamlessly or have the courage to step into something new or whatever it may be? I would say, like, first is just to listen intently and understand the environment and the vocabulary and the connections, which I 
had to do to kind of survive and to adapt before, like especially in design school, I honed this craft of listening and also like adapting and evolving and like, okay, that's how this person talks about this. And when they speak about it like that, it impacts decisions like this and, you know, kind of making those connections. But before I didn't understand like my unique role in that. I would understand how things would work and then I would just work with that. And then as I grew older, I could understand the connections between something. And then I'm like, oh, well, that means I could introduce this thing about myself or what I've learned from the past into this and impact it or multiply it in ways. So that's that would be an insight that would have even helped me more back then that I would probably want to tell folks now. So like, yeah, the first part is just like listening, not really bringing anything at first and being okay with that. Understanding like it's your your time to be the new kid right now. And that's fine. Be comfortable being the new kid. And uh, one thing that I want to underscore is be okay being the new kid forever. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Where I feel like you've done a very eloquent job of uh, you were leading a team of over 100 people. And again, we're like, okay, let's be the new kid. Where it can continue to keep evolving and presenting itself. I'm curious how that continued upon being at Amazon and so forth after to then where you are today. Yeah. Well, every light kind of casts a shadow. So the light is what you kindly mentioned earlier just now about, yeah, the beauty of leaving something behind, even if it's something that was hard fought and very successful. The shadow of that is like wanting to kind of keep doing that, you know? And <laughs> for, for a certain part of my career, until actually very recently, it's sort of like, okay, what is the next thing? What is the next thing? You know, and like, have I reached a point where I need to do the next thing? You know, and that's the shadow of the light. So I went from Amazon to... Microsoft, because we shipped the Alexa platform. We had a bunch of other hardware, software we were shipping and everything. And then like that was successful and Amazon was cool. And then Microsoft knocked on the door and was talking about there's this inclusive design, sort of budding approach to work that, you know, especially with Satya coming on board, I think we think we can really contribute to. Every 10 years, there's a new sort of design system. You know, Metro is what we have now, but we've had it for almost a decade. We need a new design system, and we want to like combine inclusive design with this new design system. And I was like, oh, this is so intriguing, and it's also something new. So, <laughs> yeah, it's like there's, there's not much rationale for me going from Amazon to Microsoft other than like it's something new that Probably is kind of the shadow, but also, you know, because I think with some of the skills we were talking about before, able to kind of like take some of those new challenges. And again, another ceiling that became a floor. Yeah. And I think it, it all depends on, on the intention with it of, uh, yes, it could be a shadow if you're in a very reactive way, constantly chasing this new, 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 new. But in your case of the time at Amazon, if that felt complete... Right. And something else came in of like, ooh, okay, yes, it is new, but it's scratching an itch and ooh, it's bringing together this other part of me that I'm like, ooh, I want to unpack this. 
that's okay. <laughs> so after Microsoft, was it then to Instacart? Microsoft to Airbnb. And that was the last four years or so at, at Airbnb leading design there, which was sort of like paradisaic for some designers, which is sort of, it's a, it's a place that is born from design with a founder and CEO that is a designer. The only sort of CEO at that level of market capitalization for a business, literally the only CEO that is a designer and with a design background. So that was amazing for me. It was a very like kind of culminating experience and humbling to be able to kind of lead a team with that much talent. So uh, a couple last pieces I want to touch on, and maybe uh, you can weave this into the context of Airbnb Instacart. One thing that we spoke of is uh, what got you here won't get you there. And so can you uh, unpack a little bit about what you meant with that statement and if it applies maybe to possibly what you're doing today versus your past experience and so on? Oh my God, yeah. On every one of those shifts, I'd say 80% of the skills and the approaches that got me to the ceiling for the previous experience completely did not apply to what became the floor of the new experience. So high school to design school, intuitively just coming up with great designs that like somehow were valuable, financially advantageous and so forth, but like you don't really know how they happened totally not applicable at design school. Well, in some ways, yes, but like you had to learn about. So like what got me there, you know, wouldn't get me to the next level at the place. Going from agency back into corporate, all right, from RGA to Amazon, holy smokes. (laughs) Most of that (laughs) did not apply to like decision-making and the way like, you know, quote unquote, selling in ideas, like in some aspects, super advantageous and a lot of aspects completely inappropriate and having to kind of learn that moving from Microsoft to Airbnb, you want to talk about two different (laughs) (laughs) like cultures and languages. That was almost like mind blowing. So yeah, every time it was this reorientation of what success means. And the more I did it, the less I would fumble sort of at first to like kind of realize that. I would just start to expect that now. I was like, oh, I have to understand or re-understand. I don't, is that even a word? We make up words here. So we're, we're <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, what it means to be successful. I'm curious what core skills you felt like in order to orient you. And I feel like this can be applied to really any designer who's starting a, a new job. What are the skills that you um, cultivate or keep top of mind in order to orient yourself? upon starting something new? Well, for one, you know, we're all peers before the object, right? So I think what's great about design is that if you're solving a problem, you're solving a problem. And it doesn't matter if you're junior, senior, mid-level, executive, the ability to solve a problem is, is sort of kind of universal. I think two is like understanding that like great ideas can come from anywhere and helping to pull that out of people regardless of the culture as well. Like in some cultures, it's very hierarchical. 
some cultures, it's too sort of democratic. So there's not like a lot of decision making and so forth. But what is the design problem? Where are solutions kind of coming from? And just understanding that it can be coming from the executive level, like top down, it can be coming from bottom up. It's going to be different wherever you're going, but like trying to understand that and then kind of propelling that in terms of fuel at whatever level of influence you're in. At a high level, I'm curious why it's important for designers or really anyone to continue to learn, grow, and skill build throughout their career. I think it prevents stagnation. It prevents frustration and burnout. I think you have to go down blind alleys. You have to fail. You have to explore and fall down and get up and learn. You have to learn in order to to grow. And usually the best things in life and in your career are on the other side of like terror and fear and failure. And the more you learn that early, the easier it is to get across those chasms of fear and failure and so forth and get into like, okay, now I'm learning and I'm going to be better for this. Yeah. It makes those hurdles and those shifts more exciting than freezing. One last question. If you could ask one thing of the audience, so maybe something that they can get started on once they take out their headphones or press pause, that they could get started on today in relation to what we spoke about, what would it be? It would be to deliver design against a belief that aligns with your personal North Star. So in whatever company or whatever facet of business or art or whatever you're in, understand what your North Star is and start to like see your design work through that personal ethos as much as possible. Okay, folks, we have a lot to get started on. <laughs> but thank you so, so, so much, Tim, for your time, your candor your stories, and your presence today. It was a joy to dive into this together. Thank you, Rachel. I really appreciated the conversation. That wraps up another episode of Design to Be Conversation. Thank you so much for listening. If you're curious to learn more about Design to Be, head over to designtobe.com. That is D-E-S-I-G-N-T-O-B-E.com. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you may listen, or share this episode with a fellow designer, your team, or on social. These are all excellent ways to support the show. And as always, thanks so much for listening.